0: Welcome to episode 18 of the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist in Arkansas, who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the go-to for all things Little Rock and Arkansas, but I also like learning about other people and what they have to offer. That's why I started a podcast. My guest for this episode is David Hampton, a certified professional addiction and recovery coach in the Nashville, Tennessee area, and we talk about addiction and what recovery can look like. This is a great episode. You'll get to meet David right after this. Are you having trouble sleeping at night? Maybe some aches and pains? Maybe you've got a little anxiety? I know where you can get some help. Heights, Apothecary, and Hemp Co. It is a delightful CBD store here in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I've been shopping there since they opened. It was about a year ago, and because my issues are just enough to annoy me, it's maybe falling asleep at night, having trouble getting my mind to wind down. It might be the annoying thing that I have right now. It's a pinched nerve, so I've got a little neuropathy. CBD has helped both of those conditions. CBD might be able to help you as well. Go to their website, heightsapothecaryandhemp.com, see the goods they have, get the chocolate for sure. Now they sold out last week because I talked about it on my podcast. But the chocolate, I eat just a tiny little square because I like a little something sweet. It's dark chocolate, 15 milligrams of CBD in it, and it provides some relief. Find out more by going to my website, said.com, but you'll get 20% off at checkout using the code LISA20 at heightsapothecaryandhemp.com. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher. Okay, with David Hampton here, the expert on all things addiction and recovery, because you've (laughs) walked this path. David, we're gonna go over the very basics. This is kindergarten class for addiction. Define it, what is addiction? Uh,
1: The nutshell I would say is anything that I believe I cannot live or function without in my life. Um that's you know that's a that's a big question for you know such a simple one but it's everything boils down to that. Now we can get into with with substances and chemicals and things like that. We'll get into um physical manifestations, things that might be dangerous, withdrawals, what those things look like, you know, with alcohol DTs, opioids, you know, you've got a whole other category, but um, One thing that process behaviors, you know, things that aren't necessarily substance, um, things more like, you know, sex addiction, gambling, food, those kind of things. um, Those the thing that shares with substance use disorders is both uh, parties in those camps are living with something that they don't believe they can do without or function without apart from.
0: And you are a person who walked that path. And um, from time of when you realized, or when someone thought it was an addictive behavior to the time you sought help, that varies among Mm -hmm. millions and millions of people. But tell me a little bit about your journey.
1: Well, I knew I had a problem a long time before other people did. Really? Um, Yeah. So
0: So people do recognize, even though you have to have an intervention, the, mm-hmm. You you did recognize something wasn't right. Uh,
1: yeah, definitely, and I think you know we're all really great at denial in um, in addiction. I mean that's how we keep going. Uh, we have to believe that um, <laughs> this isn't true, and we try every way in the world to make it not true until we just can't deny it anymore. But people who are high functioning in their in their behaviors in their disorders. Um, are really kind of fascinating because it looks so good on paper. You know, I can still perform this. I can still do that. I still come through with this. I haven't lost my job. Didn't get a DUI. You know, um, I managed it. uh, But it began to take up more and more and more of my time and energy and resources to the point that I couldn't hide it anymore.
0: Was it something you, your eyes popped open when you woke up in the morning and thought, When's my next? It's drink. Yours was alcohol. Correct? Right. Yeah. When's my next drink?
1: <laughs> well, we just, the analogy, you know, would my eyes pop open in the morning because my eyes do not pop open in the morning. Oh. I was a very <laughs> slow to come to life person. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you when you drink yourself to sleep every night, you know, because that's what I that's what I called it. You know, I just fell asleep on the couch or I fell asleep you know, in the chair, I fell asleep in the office or whatever. Well, the truth is you passed out, but that sounds pretty tacky, you know, cause, um, that's a pretty, you know, low end thing to do. So I, I prefer to go to sleep. And, uh, the reality is is you don't wake up very quickly, but, but when you do wake up in my case, um, you know, and I'll and I'll spare your show my my expletives, but the things that I would say to myself is, you know, Jesus, this stuff has to stop. You know, that was my prayer life every day. You know, they talk about your morning prayers. That was my morning prayer. You know, Jesus, this this has to stop, um, and I meant it. You know, today's going to be different. I think I'll do it this way, or I won't do it at all. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really try today to um, manage myself better and use better judgment, or I'm gonna be more sincere in my repentance this time, or um, you know, maybe I'm missing something in my in my secret uh, pact that I'm making with myself. So I'm gonna be more diligent. And by noon, I would start to feel like, well, I don't think you have to give it up completely. Um, you know, so, <laughs> by four o'clock, yeah. I was going back because my, my ritual often included taking my discarded alcohol to a dumpster somewhere and and dumping it. And I have gotten in dumpsters. I've got a whole you know episode in one of my books about that. But I have gotten in dumpsters, gathered up my booze and gone home and drank again that night because by four in the afternoon, I didn't believe I could really do life um, without it. And I didn't want to. And I thought, I've overthought it. I'm going to do it differently today. And it won't end up the way it has the other, you know, last five years. Because I drank every day for five years. I mean, I didn't miss one on purpose. And
0: you come from the paradigm, not only a a Christian, a Christ follower, but you're in ministry and a part of um, your Nashville, the hub of music, of course. (laughs) And you were part of, was it Christian singing groups too?
1: Well, I, I played a lot for artists on the road for a number of years. And I had two songwriting deals with Christian publishing companies, major Christian publishing companies, when I first came to Nashville. And, um, and then I was on a church staff for a long time at a pretty large um, church with a lot of high-profile Um, country and Christian artist people. And um, my role was uh, worship leading and uh, director of music and worship ministries was my title. And um, the interesting thing was, I didn't feel conflicted because I thought I could manage it. And because um, in my particular circles, alcohol socially was, was acceptable. Um, it's just that the five o'clock news for me had become a social occasion and, (laughs) uh, you know, that was, uh, (laughs) that was not in the, in the way that my friends and other people I knew were enjoying it. And, uh, but I did, I worked in, in church ministry for a long time and that's a, that's a whole other golly, you know um, the life as a, as a ministry person who's suffering is a very lonely one because you've created a persona and then you've got to maintain the persona and then the persona's not working anymore. And then when you get sober, you got to figure out who you're going to be. And then you're mad at everybody.
0: <laughs> well, too, that, yes, then you've realized I've been a liar. I've been mm-hmm. a fraud mm-hmm. and, and it admitting that you weren't who you said you thought you were.
1: <laughs> right.
0: So you have to reintroduce yourself almost, right? You have well, to reinvent yourself.
1: Yeah. And the interesting thing about, you know, kind of being the liar and the fraud is that um, you're lying to yourself first. And so if you can't tell yourself the truth, you're not going to ever be able to tell the truth to anybody else. and It blocks so,
0: intimacy. So you're right. you're just really thwarting any intimacy.
1: Right. Yeah. And you're, you're living in this sort of illusion and delusional place, and there's no way you're going to be honest with everybody else because you can't even tell yourself the truth.
0: But David, kind of in your defense, you had a very uh, challenging home life in that you had a terminally ill wife who Mm -hmm. passed away from multiple sclerosis. Mm And was that in 13, 2013? Yeah, 2013. uh So when did you come to grips with your alcohol problem?
1: in 2005. And, um, that's, um, when I really, uh, got sober. And the interesting thing then was that I, you know, even our sobriety, we make pacts with God, you know, we were bargaining all the way in and all the way out. Um, I decided that because I was doing the right thing, quote unquote, I was going to get sober. I was going to straighten things out. I was going to, um, finally take responsibility for my life um, at 45. Um, I thought my life was going to get easier. I thought God would reward me somehow. I didn't think it may be consciously, but unconsciously, I believed that God would somehow reward me and it would get easier. Trisha would get better. Life would get um, simpler, more manageable. And it didn't. Oh, it you worse. thought
0: if you did this, God will do this. Right.
1: Yeah. I just got thought it. that was a I thought that was fair, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it would be, it would be mighty big of him if he would just, you know, (laughs) hold up his end of the bargain, you know, and, uh, and, and Trisha got sicker and she got more Mm. critically ill and, um, she spent the last seven years of her life in a hospital bed in our home. Mm. And so, um, at that point, um, you have to realize that, um, there was a lot of anger under your drinking as well you know and you have to begin to confront that and confront your expectations and what you think you deserve and your entitlement and all that kind of stuff.
0: So if you didn't come to grips with your alcoholism till age 45 mm-hmm. so did you were you drinking then daily from 40 to 45?
1: Yeah, uh Ish. I really yeah, I would I would say that was really the span of my of my daily drinking uh was 40 to 45. I was you know, socially drinking between um, my early twenties, I wasn't a big get drunk and go crazy in college person. That's what um, I was wondering. I really was there?
0: Did yeah. you have that behavior early,
1: or no? No, but I had a I, I had a really a profound experience when I was 13 years old. I took my first drink, and um, you know, I grew up in a good Southern Baptist family where. They didn't have alcohol in the house, but a client had given my dad a bottle of Kentucky bourbon for Christmas in a foil box. And they, you know, they put it in the pantry because they didn't know what to do with it because they didn't drink and they didn't want to give it to somebody because they didn't really believe in, you know, offering somebody the opportunity to drink. So uh, they put it behind the baked goods in the pantry, which is, I joke now, you know, where I know Baptists keep their liquor. <laughs> and so... Um, my father-in-law is a
0: Baptist minister so he bought (laughs) beer once to kill the slugs. (laughs) And... You know, that's the only beer that's ever been bought, except I'm sure my husband drank it as a child, but I get it. Yeah.
1: Yeah. The only reason you need that is to kill the slugs. Um, (laughs) But but they had this, you know, tucked away in there and I was fascinated with it. And I don't know why I always kind of had a fascination with alcohol as a kid, but uh, maybe it's because my parents didn't do it. But my aunt and uncle did. And I knew that um, it looked fascinating, but I wanted to taste this. And so they were gone to a Christmas party one night and I poured myself this drink. I didn't know how to pour drink, but I poured myself this drink at 13. And I can remember exactly where I was and exactly, you know, the the family room we were in in that house at the time, it was the 70s. And, you know, the wood paneling, Charlie Brown's on TV, the Christmas Mm -hmm. lights are on. And I'm in there sipping Sprite and Kentucky bourbon in a, uh, you know, a juice glass on the rocks. And I filled it about half and half. And I i didn't think it tasted horrible and i didn't think it was awful and terrible things didn't happen to me like everybody told me they would and i began to feel what i interpreted and still do really uh, what i what i experienced as peace for the first time in my life oh because it not, took the edge off right i was not anxious i was not ashamed i was not wound tight i was not um, any of the things that I felt when I when I when I wasn't you know apparently drinking but I thought why would anybody not do this this is this is like a warm hug from god you know <laughs> I mean it, it seriously is just like god meant for me to feel this every day for the rest of my life um why you know why would anybody pray for peace when bacardi sells it for 9.99 <laughs> You know, so.
0: <laughs> well, it could lead to dancing and that's you right. know, you know, things that's, go downhill yeah. from there.
1: We, we know how that goes. <laughs> so, well, yeah. So, yeah, it was it was a it was an experience that I pressed pause in my psyche in that moment and said, I, I think this I think I've been lied to. And I think this could actually be a really good thing.
0: Did you continue to drink? Did you continue to go to people's um, baking supplies and their Baptist homes <laughs> looking uh, for I, I
1: did. At, from yeah, from time to time, when I could find it, I would sample. You know, um, I remember being a senior in high school and I worked as a lobby attendant in a kind of high-end condominium building in my in my town that i grew up in and um there was a penthouse on the top floor where they would have parties and um i would always volunteer to clean up because there was leftover champagne and you know i was a senior in high school but i'd volunteer to clean up after the caterers left and um and i would drink all the leftover champagne because that was an opportunity you know so
0: So do you think you had the wiring? Let's say you lived in a home where alcohol poured freely. Do you think you would have imbibed more? You know what I'm saying? Did did Mm. you just have a propensity to overdo it?
1: Well, I think I have a propensity to overdo, period. Yeah, that's probably a thing that I'll always always have to uh, reckon with. But my mom grew up in a family of alcoholic chaos. And um, I had seven alcoholic uncles that I would, that I would identify as alcoholic. They did not, um, self-identify at all. Um, they, they weren't that self-aware. Um, but, uh, she grew up in this, in this chaotic home and, and her determination was that we weren't going to be that, you know, she was going to have a home where alcohol wasn't part of it. We weren't going to be this, we weren't going to be this, but in her attempt to, um, kind of, uh be the antithesis of her growing up she did bring a lot of expectation and she and i talked about all this you know but she did bring a lot of expectation into into her home and so we didn't drink but we we definitely learned how to look good Mm -hmm. so
0: uh where where were you did you were you raised in tennessee
1: no i grew up in southern indiana yeah
0: okay Oh, they have southern yeah. baptist in southern indiana i guess
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> they don't the have a bunch heart. yeah they don't have a bunch of them but they're they there is a remnant
0: <laughs> <laughs> so um went to college didn't really go crazy at the frat parties mm-hmm. that kind of stuff so you really thought you were in the clear yeah
1: yeah i i really didn't even think about drinking that much during some of those stretches. You know, I played in a Christian music group at the time in college and we traveled for, uh, in high school and college, we traveled for five summers and went out and, you know, did the Jesus circuit and, um, you know, revivals and festivals and whatever we could get. And, um, and so I didn't have a lot of exposure to it at that in that season of my life, but when I got out of school and came back to Indiana or came back to Evansville where I grew up, um, it just seemed like I always needed a little something extra, you know, to function. To take
0: the edge off.
1: Yeah, cool. I had a you know I I had a lot of um, disappointment and things that I was going through in my life that I I was you know, not working in music and I wanted to be, and I was too scared to move to Nashville. So for a few years and I got married very young, you know, I got married three weeks before my 21st birthday. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't necessarily recommend that, but that's what I did. And, um, so I sort of grew up, um, married and, uh, that had some baggage too, I think, in a, you know, to be honest. And, uh, so alcohol became sort of a, way that I didn't have to feel bad about all that.
0: It was a friend. Oh, sure. It was a friend who didn't judge.
1: Yeah. And And it was always there. It came through mm -hmm, until mm -hmm. it didn't, you know, until it started demanding more and more and more of me. I always really, a a lot of my clients, when they come in and they're in this, in that space where uh, they're so um, entrenched in their behavior, uh, I really uh, draw the analogy that alcohol is, is an affair when when you're having that oh, level of a relationship yeah. it's a third person in your relationship you know uh because it's it's there and and you're you're with it and it demands more of you and eventually you want to give it more and it demands more time and more planning and more preparation when am i going to get to do it how am i going to get to do it how long am i going to get to do it um, at whose expense am I willing to do it? <laughs> who am I willing to disappoint? And more and more often than not, it becomes your your immediate family and the people uh, in your life that you love and care for. Uh, but it it's an affair, you know. I mean, in, on one level,
0: who who started noticing this affair in your life? Was it your wife? Was it kids? Was it coworkers? Because it wasn't David yet, right?
1: (laughs) Well, no, um, not at first, because I was um, I was above being out of control. I thought, you know, Uh, and I think that initially, I knew I had a problem before Tricia began to confront me about it. But she would come in and she'd say. you know, is that your first glass of wine? Because I'd be cooking dinner. You know, she was not able to stand up long enough in one space eventually that she could actually, you know, cook. So I, you know, quit working early enough that I'd get home and I'd make dinner or pick up my daughter from school or whatever. And uh, when she was in grade school, and so I was doing these things with, uh, you know, a lot of resentment, honestly. Patricia um, would come in and she'd say, is that your first glass of wine? And I'd be like, well, yeah why why well in my mind it was my first glass that i had dirtied up so it was my first (laughs) glass of wine if you want to know the truth you'll have to learn to ask better questions you know (laughs) (laughs) like how many times have you filled up that first glass you know that would be a fair question but um, that was not what she asked and so finally one day i told her and i knew i was kind of in trouble when i said stuff like this but i said if you didn't nag me about this i wouldn't have to lie to you
0: because she was It wasn't your problem. It's because somebody caused the drinking, right?
1: right? So you gaslight people and you kind of make them feel bad for feeling suspicious, but, you know, Mm -hmm. she's noticing things and, and then she, you know, then we, as time went on, we had some pretty, um, pretty intense battles over, you know, I would go to get my, by then I was drinking a lot of rum and Diet Coke and, um, at night and, I would start out with wine in the afternoon while I was cooking and fixing dinner. And then I'd graduate to rum and Diet Mm -hmm. Coke while I watched TV or did other things. And by the time nine o'clock rolled around, I was going to sleep. But she would I would go in to get my rum and it would be empty and she would have poured it out. You know, she couldn't walk but without a walker, but she could manage to take a handle of rum to the kitchen sink and pour it down the drain. I, I bet she
0: could. Right. <laughs>
1: and that was um, that's that was...
0: that's the determination of a woman.
1: <laughs> yes, it is. And and I will tell you, uh, you have not met a determined woman until you knew Trisha Hampton. So that was wow. probably. Yeah, she uh, she definitely uh, had a had a. Um, a will that served her well in her disease, but it also really butted up against mine. So
0: you needed it.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. You needed
0: the bristle, the bristle of that. Um, That's a technique. A lot of families do is pouring out the alcohol. Mm -hmm. It's really subversive. I mean, it it, it's, it's so manipulative because we're do, I mean, a family member would do anything to save Mm -hmm. a husband, a spouse, a child, a daughter or whatever. Absolutely. Um, but it probably then adds resentment on your end, the oh, drinker's yeah. end.
1: Which leads to and my then, entitlement, which right, exacerbates right. my it's behavior. It just
0: spirals. Yes, it yeah. just spirals. So uh, so anyone listening right now, should they stop the pouring out the hooch?
1: Well, you know, if it makes you feel better, you can keep trying. But it's not going to change the behavior of the person who's suffering. You know, it's just going to inflame the situation so
0: what was your rock bottom then
1: well um i had a gosh i guess i had a few but um one um two instances that were pretty close together i mean they were probably within six months um one instance was a new year's eve that my daughter who was about i'm trying to remember she was probably uh 14 or 15 at the time um and by then and and she said I'm going to have friends over for New Year's Eve and I don't and I don't want you to drink because you're just too talkative and you're just too friendly and fun and and I just don't want it you know cuz I wasn't the drunk that threw furniture and caused chaos and did terrible things Again. to people
0: and you justified that behavior Correct. Of, I'm not the mean drunk, I'm a happy drunk.
1: Yeah, I just check out what, you know, what do you want? And so I was like, well, you know, so I was really offended, of course, that she would feel the need to ask me that. I said, fine, fine, fine. I just won't drink, you know, so have your friends over. I'll behave, whatever. And uh, again, I'm the victim, of course. And um, you did you to-
0: abstain that night?
1: No. I did not. And, and that's kind of the point was, you know, they were having fun off in the great room. Everything was going fine. And I was alone on New Year's Eve. Trisha's asleep in bed. You know, it's just not a big festival for me. And so I just decided I deserved a drink and how dare anybody try to get in between me and my alcohol. And it was unfair of Lauren to ask me that. So I'm going to go in and while they're busy, I'll just pour something and take it back to the back to my part of the house. And, um, so I went in the kitchen and I was pouring myself a rum and Diet Coke at the counter and Lauren happened to come around the corner of the kitchen to get some food or something and, um, and she saw me. And there was this look on her face that just said, you know, um, it, was, it was a look between disgust and disdain and you're pathetic and hurt and pain. And it was like if you could roll all that up into one look, Mm-hmm. one expression. And um, and I saw her face and, and our eyes just locked. And I, all I could do was look at her and say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And she just turned around and walked out. She didn't get mad. She didn't go crazy. She just turned around and walked out.
0: So you were saying, I'm sorry, but I have to have this life preserver to make it yeah. one more day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And were you a- sorry? Were you sorry? In as sincerely as I could be at the time, I was. I wasn't just sorry I I got caught. I was sorry that I had to do it, that I believed I had to do it, you know. And and I think the other kind of really bad situation was that um, uh, Tricia and I had gotten into a big argument one night and um, I had been doing a lot of things that she needed. She had had a lot of special needs by then. And, um, you know, she was giving me a lot of flack for drinking because it was too much. It was this, it was that. Um, I didn't remember things. I had to be told things over and over and over. It was frustrating. And, um, and she was fearful, you know, and she just told me she was sick of it and something had to change. And I said, well, if your life's such a living hell, you know, divorce me and do us both a favor, you know, um, cause good luck, you know, and the next morning she said, do you remember last night? And I didn't, I had pieces of it, you know, uh, and then I began to remember and, and she informed me with no problem, uh, about what had happened. And I was like, well, you know, I don't mean that I would, I, I can't imagine that you think I'd mean that. And she had done a spreadsheet of our finances. And she said, wow. the only thing I'm asking you is she said, I will go live with my parents. But she said, I can't, you can't divorce me. We've got to leave this as our legal address so I can stay on your insurance. I don't want to be married to you, but I need your insurance. And so, you know, if you can do that, I'll do that. And she was serious. I mean, she was as serious as a heart attack. She was, oh,
0: I bet she was. You know,
1: she had done the math and stayed up and, you know, clacked away on her computer and um, she had it figured out. And I thought, well, you know, these things are these things are starting to they're starting to roll together. My hands were shaking. I wouldn't I wouldn't hand someone a pen at a meeting um, from across the table. I would scoot it so that they wouldn't see my hand shake.
0: What is that? I, I worked with an alcoholic um and I would notice the next day hit the shaky hand, a lot of health problems too, sciatica and um, mm-hmm. AFib and all these other things that he said were just mm-hmm. these span of illnesses. But I remember the shakiness. Is that just kind of the, the detox, the DTs almost? Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a delirium tremens is the potential, um, uh, diagnosis for uh, shaking, and it has the potential in severe cases of leading to seizures and things like that. That's why we don't want people with real acute alcoholism to detox at home on their own. You know, it's because the the risk is really great for seizure and for um, you know some pretty severe. Uh, side effects. So, but the shaking is neurological. You're waking up and your body is, you know, ridding itself of toxins that it has, you know, accumulated. And, and when you don't give it, that's what, that's really why morning drinking starts. Um, you know, is because to it can- To relieve the symptoms. Yeah, it can, yeah, it can give you a little bit of an edge over um, the shaking and the, um, the headache and the acute, you know, uh, feelings of just- Feeling terrible.
0: Uh, when did you or did you ever employ the morning drinking to relieve those symptoms?
1: The last six months I drank, I found myself on occasion just having a little sip in the morning. You know, um, I say a little sip, but, you, you know, who knows how to measure that. But um, it was not something that I did with regularity, but it scared me. And oh, it, was,
0: it, it it scared you. Oh, so yeah. you did... So this is, I don't understand. I'm trying to figure out the the brain process through this. Mm -hmm. You start realizing when your daughter said something, when your wife said something, but do you think it wasn't until you did morning drinking that you thought, oh, darn, I might have a problem? Because they were crazy. You know, they they were wrong and you were the (laughs) victim.
1: Yeah, yeah, It uh, it was all of it because I knew I wasn't remembering things. I knew I was having conversations with people on the phone at night that I didn't remember. I knew that I was um, getting um, into situations where um, my uh, my preoccupation with alcohol was greater and greater and greater. And I knew that when I tried to stop, I felt horrible. And I knew I was in trouble. And then everybody beginning to confront me just began to, uh, that, that echoed what I already knew to be true. Uh, but the fear that you're going to, you're going to have to live without anesthesia and experience everything in your life that you've tried not to feel or know um, is, is profound.
0: Mm Did you ever make trips because the guy i'm thinking of made the trip to the emergency room and uh the people in the emergency room spoke to me about it because i worked with him Mm -hmm. and he he had a seizure i mean exactly Mm -hmm. what you're talking about Mm -hmm. he was trying not to drink because we had a big event together and he had the seizure and so the er people talked to me and said can you can you give us an idea of what's going on i mean they can smell it and i said Mm You know, he's an alcoholic. And they said when they asked him, Mr. Smith, they asked, How much do you drink? And they said there's a multiplier. I can't remember yeah. what it is. They double in the anything you tell him.
1: Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: He said just three or four, you know, mm-hmm. maybe two or three. Mm-hmm. And they said, No, that's eight to 10 or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. Did you find yourself in medical situations where you're having to defend that I really don't drink that much? Or did you ever get to that point?
1: Yeah, I never had, thankfully, um, an occasion to go to the ER. But what I did experience was really acute depression. And so I would go to the doctor and he would put me on these antidepressants. And I would go back in six months and I'd say, I don't think these are doing it. You know, this is not I'm still like really dragging around. I don't have any motivation you know, this is this is not working, and he'd say, "Wow, you know that that's a pretty good dose uh, that you're on of Zoloft or Wellbutrin or whatever I'd be on at the time. I'd, I'd done them all, I guess." But um, <laughs> he he would say, "Do you drink much?" And I'd say, "No, I mean I drink socially or something, but I don't drink a lot, you know." And he'd go, "Well, how much do you think you drink?" And I said, "I probably have a couple of drinks at night, maybe." three or four nights a week, but I don't drink that much. And he kind of looked at me and he goes, okay, well, typically when antidepressants aren't working, there's something interfering with the efficacy of the drug and alcohol is a depressant. And so, you know, you're, if you're depressed and you're and you're using a depressant to conquer your depression, it's probably not going to work. But we'd have these talks and I'd be like, yeah, I get it. But I, I think I just need something different, you know? So I would, that's kind of where my medical dilemmas would, would land me.
0: Um, Were you red faced and mm -hmm. puffy and all those things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a very
1: um, kind of red, ruddy complexion in those seasons. If I looked at pictures that were done that, that weren't touched up, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, at the, during that time in my life, um, I would be very rosy a lot. Yeah.
0: So can you then, not to be judgy, but can you spot people now and go probably battling alcoholism just by the look?
1: I think there's a a strong element of truth to the, you know, if you spot it, you got it kind of thing. Um, Yeah, Um, I, I can almost guess with pretty strong accuracy when somebody's dealing with something like that, you know
0: is it a relief for them because you've walked it, David, you know, you know, this road when you confront them and say, are you drinking too much? Can they look at, you know, cause you'll say, I I walked the path. Do they look at you with sad eyes going? Yes. And I need help. I guess every journey is different. I guess you can't,
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it's different for everybody. And I've often learned not to ask if they are drinking too much because no person with a problem thinks they are, you know, Um, or they haven't admitted it yet, you know, unless they're at that place where they're really um, struggling with whether to ask for help or not, because they do know that they're really there's a crisis, you know, but
0: because you're an addiction counselor now i mean you, mm-hmm. you've devoted your life to good that's part of the mental health umbrella mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so if they're coming to you have they already admitted then that they have a problem or are they kind of searching
1: uh both I, I have people who are coming in and they'll say um my husband thinks i need to see you but i don't know why you know and i'll say well, OK, I, I get that. And tell me a little bit about why your husband thinks you might have a problematic relationship with alcohol. I, I've i had two DUIs in six months, but both of them were not my fault. You, know, and, <laughs> you know, I'm like, OK, well, let's talk about that. You know, we kind of mm-hmm. unpack. But then I have people that come in and go, um, I'm drinking a whole lot more than anybody knows, and I don't know what to do about it. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to get fired or I'm afraid to go to treatment because I, I would have to let people know, you know, mm-hmm. I'm afraid to get help because I don't want to go to those meetings and sit with those people. You know, I used to say the same thing. I'm not an alcoholic. I just drink like one. Why would I go to AA? <laughs>
0: I'm not an alcoholic. I just drink like one.
1: Right. <laughs> yeah. Right.
0: Then what was it for you after you hit rock bottom? Did you go to treatment? Did you do AA? What, what was it that fixed this?
1: Well, I went to um, my friend Nate Larkin at the time uh, and told him what was really going on. And I wasn't sure what to do about it. And he took me to my first AA meeting. He didn't even ask me if I wanted to go. He just, <laughs> he just said, it's across the street. We're going, you know. And so we literally were having Does coffee. Nate- and-
0: does Nate hire out? Like, can he yeah. Uber people all over the country? Because everyone needs a Nate Larkin to say,
1: look, yeah, let's he, deal with well, this. In his in his world of addiction, he really uh he he is with people constantly. I'll tell you, he gives himself away like like crazy to people, which I love. I love that about Nate. But um but he took me to my first AA meeting and I was miserable. You know, I just thought this is the most Awful. It's come to this. You know, this is like the waiting room to hell down here. I don't want to be here.
0: <laughs> and at that point, had you had anything to drink that morning or were you still from last night's No, bus? I was
1: still nice and tidy from the night before, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but I went in and I thought, well, I don't, I don't relate to the person that left his car in Paducah, but I did relate to this person and this person and this person, and this person, you know? And so I started going on my own. And eventually a friend of mine, um, from my church, uh, came to the meeting and saw me because he frequents the meetings. And he said, do you have a sponsor? And I said, no, I don't, I don't know if I want to, I don't know if I want to get that.
0: And you were drinking still every day during this? Yeah, Yeah. I
1: I drank and went to AA and, you know, thought that I was just going to catch sobriety or something. It would happen (laughs) to me, you know, somehow. Kind of like you catch a cold, I would catch the sobriety bug, and then (laughs) I'd be all better. And I really didn't go to AA to quit drinking. I went to see if there was a way I could just manage it and drink like other people, you know, because I couldn't imagine just never, ever, not anymore drinking. That'd be just terrible, you know. And so um, I, I went and, and I did meet this man's sponsor and this guy became my sponsor for uh, the first few years. And I went to AA every day, but I also employed the work of a addictions um, specialist, uh, a counselor who specializes in addiction and recovery. And, um, and I saw her three times a week for the first I guess a year and then twice a week for the next two or three years. And then once a week after that. So I spent a lot of money and time with her and going to AA and spending time with other recovering people. um, Because it was interesting. My first sponsor told me, um, he said, if you want to just stop drinking, I can't help you. But if you want to get sober, I can. And i didn't know the difference
0: okay tell me the difference
1: yeah the difference he said and he's proven to be right um is sobriety is the difference in taking everything that you think you know believe the narrative that you're telling yourself um your values everything about you and laying it all out on the table and sifting through it and everything from god on down and some of it will make the trip back and some of it won't because some of it's not true, you know, and we're going to, we're going to keep the truth, but, um, but that's living soberly, living an integrated, the good and the bad and the ugly all can live in one, under one umbrella. And we're going to, we're going to fire the persona, you know, we're going to get rid of that because it's not working for you. It's just something you have to maintain and prop up. So in all this honesty over this period of time, and especially with therapy, um, I began to get really aware that um, I felt really conflicted because a lot of the things I thought I knew I didn't know. And I worked in a belief system that sold certainty to people, you know, um, the church, you know, and I wasn't sure that was altogether the way I saw it anymore. And that created conflict. And so I always tell people sobriety is going to be the most disruptive thing you do. Um, it's It's going to interrupt everything.
0: Um, so at that point you were pursuing, you were pursuing sobriety then
1: mm-hmm. by then. Yeah.
0: How long was it before it took?
1: I had a few relapses, you know, but it finally, um, seemed that they were fewer and further apart. And then it just got to be something that I just didn't want to do anymore. And it was hard to explain. It was sort of that psychic shift, you know, that, that the cognitive restructuring had finally gotten enough foundation that I just didn't want to drink. Um, an aversion? I think it was more, um, I mean, maybe it was an aversion, but I think it was more a um, a place of feeling like this is obviously not going to end well anymore. <laughs> um, this is proving to be true. And so if that's the case, why am I so insistent on sabotaging myself? You know, and it was sort of at that point that I just could walk away and go, all right, I, you know, I don't want to do this. Um, It's not like I didn't romanticize about it once in a while or um, have to, you know, have a reminder phone call from somebody to say, I'm going on vacation and I'm, really going to miss drinking margaritas on the balcony watching the ocean roll in, you know? Um, and my friend would say, yeah, but when was it just a margarita? When was the last time that ever happened? You know, you're going to be hanging off the balcony if you drink margaritas on the balcony. Remember? Um, so.
0: Would you go the non-alcoholic route in that? Would you drink the Virgin Bloody Mary or the Virgin Margarita or does that throw everything off?
1: No, I, I'm not a. I'm not opposed to the non-alcoholic um, beers or the non-alcoholic um, spirits for people. For some people, they are a trigger um, because it's the idea. Again, it's that romantic relationship with mm-hmm. it that um, can trigger it. And um, and and for a lot of people, if beer doesn't, you know, give you a buzz, there's not much reason to drink it. You know, it's probably not the most delightful tasting stuff in the world, unless you've really acquired taste for it. And, um, so I'm not opposed to non-alcoholic drinks. Um, but I think you have to be careful maybe where you are in your sobriety or your recovery and, um, and how that might, what your relationship is romantically again, you know, that illusion.
0: And everybody's story is unique, obviously, Mm -hmm. but could you, David, could I bring a bottle of wine to your home and we are drinking? Is it too tempting for you? Or are you... Mm, no.
1: no, no, that's a good question, though, because I get asked that a lot. And um, all my friends drink. I mean, I, I have a lot of sober friends, but I have a whole lot of friends that drink and, um, and they don't tone it down just because I'm going to be showing up you know, um, they want me to come to dinner. Um, When I was early on in my sobriety, people would say, we're going to have dinner, we're going to have a cookout, but there's going to be beer and wine there. Are you okay? I'd be like, yeah, your drinking was never my problem. My drinking was my problem. And if I want to drink, I'm going to leave your house and go get alcohol and drink it the way I want to drink, because I would never drink in front of people the way I wanted to drink anyway. I only really drank the way I wanted to drink when I was by myself. So So
0: no one knew the secret, but you, even your wife didn't know how much you consumed.
1: Right. Until she started watching the bottles, you know, that's why I started spending cash at the liquor store because she was tracking my ATM or my debit card, you know, and uh, she'd go, you've spent $75 on alcohol this week. That's a lot of money. And you're
0: probably rich now. Think of the money you've <laughs> saved.
1: It, you know, it really is remarkable how much you have left over in your checking account at the end of the month when you're not um, making several trips. Yeah.
0: Well, one philosophy that it really intrigued me and it, when you and KK and Nate were on my podcast recently, it was, and I hope I'm saying the words right, the manage moderation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, it, so let, let's talk about that. Define that for me. And we'll talk about how that can be a part of somebody's life if they're battling any time or they're walking sobriety.
1: Yeah. Well, that's a great, a great question, because there are models that are emerging, you know, both in behavioral health and the recovery world that are saying, you know, for some people, alcohol is a manageable substance. And that is true true for some people but i have to be careful because statistically we know that um, people who got to a point where they had a physical addiction with alcohol not just an emotional dependency but a physical addiction they had dt's handshake um, cravings you know this kind of thing percentage-wise those people aren't successful in manage moderation. So if you're a person that is experiencing um, cravings, withdrawal, irritation, all these different things when you when you don't drink, when you need to drink, um, you can probably just forget trying to do manage moderation and if you can, spare yourself the, the aggravation because it typically leads you back to where you were. Um, but for some people, we know when they get out of bad marriages, leave certain jobs, um, they get out from under certain stressful, you know, experiences um, or they come to grips with their trauma. You know, they do their, their trauma work and they drew some of this uh, kind of stuff that we know addiction is rooted in. Um, they can go back and have a moderate relationship with alcohol. But again, I want to be super, super careful with that because um, those models tend to work with people that... Um, their relationship to something was situational more than it was an actual chemical dependency.
0: Because
1: okay. there are heavy okay. drinkers, and then there are people who drink alcoholically.
0: Say that again. There are heavy drinkers
1: mm-hmm. and
0: people who drink alcoholically. Where did you find yourself?
1: Um, I would put me in the alcoholic category, and for a lot of people, that that's a shaming word, and I don't I don't really use it as a self-deprecating term. I just simply know that in the substance use disorder world, which is kind of where we're being asked to begin to term things, to identify things, um, there is a, about, there are about 10 things that the DSM outlines as a substance use disorder. Um, and if you get over about six of those yeses, you know, then you're probably in the danger zone, you know, for you're probably questionable. Um, I'm 10. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay. So it's kind of like, you know, when I quit drinking, I would have had to say yes. I would have had to say yes to 10 of those, all 10 of them, you know, in some capacity. So
0: Now, aren't, aren't there pharmaceuticals, though, to help with that compulsive behavior or to make alcohol not taste good?
1: Well, uh, there are a couple of things. There's anabuse which makes you sick um, that they would right. give someone. And an abuse is kind of extreme. And uh, not a lot of people use it right now because what happens typically is people want to they, they think if I give you something and it makes you sick when you drink, you won't drink. Um, but what happens is when people go off the an abuse, unless they've really done a lot of therapy Um, they're going to drink again, you know, but there's a drug called naltrexone or, um, you know, in the, that's the oral medication. The, the shot is uh, Vivitrol. The oral medication you take daily, the shot you get maybe when you leave treatment and you give it about once a month, but that is something that comes between you and the euphoria of alcohol. So it's sort of a inhibitor. Um, the, um, the naltrexone is, um, it, it keeps you from, having a euphoric experience with your drinking, you can still get drunk, you know, but you're not going to have this euphoric, uh, payoff that you get otherwise.
0: The naltrexone is given. I have several autoimmune conditions mm-hmm. and they do that to see what it does. It didn't do anything for me. But I remember in the beginning being asked the question, mine was a low dose. And I guess for alcoholics, it was a higher dose. Mm-hmm. I tell you another time I had something where i I was having a gallbladder. I had a blocked duct in my gallbladder. And my physician finally sent me to the emergency room. I'd been running. I had like an infection. I kind of couldn't get over it. And David, when you go to the emergency room with, Pain in your upper abdomen, Mm -hmm. they uh, counselors come in wanting to know how much I drank. And I mean, I might have a glass of wine a week. I mean, Mm -hmm. I I said I might have had a margarita in the last month, you know, Mm -hmm. but I had because they want to make sure that then they ask it another way. Then they asked another way Mm -hmm. because they thought I had pancreatitis, right? Which is something it has the same, it refers in the same area. And I didn't, but I just remember. I finally asked the last person, I go, Do you get a commission for <laughs> if I drink a lot? Because I said, I keep telling you, no, I have maybe a glass of wine every two weeks. I can't even remember what it was. Yeah. And and they the last person said, Honestly, if you had pancreatitis. She said, by the time they come to the emergency room, they want relief. Yeah. She said, the pain is so bad and she was usually the eyes are yellow. Right. Uh, She said at that point, but I just remember person after person after person, I was going, and she said, because they, they often wind up in the emergency room. That's why I was asking you too. any medical, like, does that give someone the impetus then if they're the emergency room with yellow eyes and pancreatitis Does that make them think, all right, I can't do this again?
1: Well, logically, yes. And then the magical thinking kicks in, you know, and so I've had um, I've had clients that have had, um, you know, have had to have long hospital stays. Uh, because of how much damage they can go home and continue to do even when they're told, you know, you've got pancreatitis, you've got a fatty liver, you know, you've got encephalopathy, uh, early signs for your, you know, the brain um, is uh, they sometimes call it wet brain, I believe. But, um, you know, your, your borderline early dementia type behavior, you know. Um, and, um, and you will still continue to drink, but that tells you how powerful the disease is, you know, it tells you that you're not going to outsmart your disease and you're not going to logically, um, talk someone out of drinking. There is going to be a point in their story where they have to come to terms with the fact that they are powerless, you know, and, and they have to want to make change. And then we have to move really fast.
0: Now, does you walk the 12 steps because you mm-hmm. went through AA, mm-hmm. do you still employ those now for people who come see you, for your
1: clients? I, I do with people and I want them to have a community of people around them to do that kind of work with. But I am um, I am more and more convinced that it's trauma and shame and um, the narratives that we grow up believing that have to be undone and addressed with people for them to have long-term success i think the steps are are great and many people succeed you know with with 12-step only work and i think that's great but for most people there is a trauma component and a shame component that is underneath all this it says i'm not okay and um you know, there's a, there's a test we can give people, the ACE test, you know, adverse childhood experiences. And, you know, the more yeses out of those 10 questions you have, you know, the more likely uh, you're possibly going to experience a problem.
0: But, you know, again, that too is so subjective because I've talked about my high ACE score, grew up in addiction and then raised Mm -hmm. with other people where there was addiction. And I really almost, I I have the autoimmune conditions. Mm-hmm. They say people with a lot of autoimmune conditions often have a high A score. And, and I and I don't want to say this pridefully or in a smug way because mm-hmm. I have a lot of empathy. But I just, I, I, I guess I saw the way alcohol did people and it makes me run the other way.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So it, where in the brain does, it, even though I have the trauma, it, it makes me run like I'm on fire because I've i seen the people walk through that path. So Mm -hmm. can you kind of talk about that? The, what trauma does to the brain?
1: Well, you're the traumatized person is in that fight, flight, or freeze mode all the time. And when you discover something that causes you to not feel that acute, um, anxiety, you know, uh, because uh, just about all my alcohol patients—I um, call them patients, their clients—have um, a relationship with anxiety that's off the charts. You know, uh, anxiety and sleep. You know, they can't sleep and they're anxious. And is
0: anxiety then a springboard? For oh, yeah. Trauma, the-
1: shame and anxiety or, um, and isolation or what we call the four legged stool, you know, and um, it's it's the thing that we look for. Trauma, shame, anxiety and isolation. And because uh, that that is the perfect storm for someone to develop a substance use disorder because because you've got all this fight, flight or freeze in that trauma brain telling you um you know it's like when you see a bear in the woods you know and um your amygdala says run like hell and you should you should listen (laughs) it's saving your life but when you go in the woods and you only feel like there's a bear there might be a bear or what if there's a bear Um, that's anxiety you know and when you live life like there's a bear in the woods um, about six feet breathing down your neck um, day in and day out, you're going to find a way to medicate that. And, and so for a little while, they don't feel anxious. They don't feel shame. They don't mind that they're isolated, you know? Um, and, and the anxiety takes a, takes a back seat when the substance is present.
0: Well, you had a bear living six feet from you in, the trauma of Trisha being ill Mm because you were sober and then she died Mm because you said you were sober in 05. She Mm -hmm. died in 13. Right. So, well, I mean, for perpetuity, how do you then cope with, I mean, how heartbreaking to watch your wife die before you, Mm -hmm. how did you then cope?
1: Well, um, that's a, that's a good question too, because I think, um, there's something about knowing that this is going to happen. You don't know when, you don't know exactly how it's going to be, but you've been told by everybody that is in the medical circle (laughs) that this is what you're looking at and this is how this will probably go. And so you kind of go down that path. But I remember her hospice nurse, the day that she passed away, told me, you know, anybody that needs to see Trisha needs to come today, not tomorrow, but today, because the things she's demonstrating right now are signs that she's not going to be with us, you know, by tomorrow. And I remember having the reaction to him. And I said, today, you think she's going to die today? Because I was still, you know, they've been telling you for months and months, you know, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. And here's what you need to look for. And here's how this could go. And here's what, you know, and, and then it happens down to the minute where you're going, oh, you mean today, you know, and so, um, I think the preparation that you do, I thought I, I thought I, I joked that I, um, was on the pay ahead grief plan, <laughs> yeah. you know? And so that by the time she died, I would be sad and I'd be relieved, but I wouldn't be, um, I wouldn't be anxious. And I had a big conversation with my therapist about that. And she asked me if I was prepared for the anxiety I was going to feel when Trisha passed away. Um, because, you know, we want to be sure that we're not, that we're prepared to not relapse and things like that that happen to people. And I said, oh, you know, Marilyn, you're good and everything, but <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be sad and I'm going to be, um, you know, uh, a lot of things, but I'm not going to be anxious this is going to, this is, this is not going to be anxiety. And man, you know, the thing that, and not to go into a long story, but the, just the, the, the nutshell is she passed away at 10 30 that night, the funeral home came and got her body at midnight. And at 6 AM the next morning, I woke up in my room because I stayed in the room across the hall, um, at 6 AM. And my first thought was, I got to go move Trisha. I've got to go turn Trisha. And I went in there, of course. She's not there. There's no Trisha. And then there was no Trisha that needed lunch. And then there was no Trisha that needed afternoon medicine. There was no Trisha that needed this. And you've got this sudden, big, gaping hole in your life, you know, of time and where all your energy went and all of that. And so it did produce anxiety. Marilyn was right. (laughs) It did produce this terrible um, void. And so, to your point, I didn't relapse. I didn't drink, but I had to find ways that were meaningful to fill that void for me. What was I going to do with all this extra life that I had now? And Do you you
0: discuss all this in your book, After the Miracle? I do.
1: Yeah. I talk about that pretty pretty deeply uh, in pretty much um, a lot of depth about that. Because I think that that's something that people, um, both dealing with addiction and chronic Illness caregiving um, in the book that I, I I try to give them permission by telling how I felt and what I experienced um, to be as honest with themselves about what they're experiencing as they can because caregivers feel terrible guilt about their frustration. You know,
0: I'm sure uh, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, it's a definite must read, and then your work there in the greater Nashville area. And right. that um, we're in a time where. We can just meet people by screens mm-hmm. and video conference and um, virtually. So you yeah. can, your work uh, continues to go on. Thank you so much for being here, David. You've oh, got a great message. Lisa, thank so you so much. So encouraging. And um, you, I mean, just continue to preach the good news of Jesus and sobriety. <laughs> well, I
1: appreciate that. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Lisa Fisher Said podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, download the episodes, and even leave a review. If you ever have a suggestion on someone you think I need to interview, let me know, Lisa at said.com And check out my website when you get a chance, LisaFisherSaid.com.